Hello? Hi, it's Keith. Oh, hi. How are you? Not bad. Can you hear me all right? Yeah, I can. Cool. Just uh, had a really hard time getting this uh, recorder to turn on today. I think this thing really is on its last legs. It's about to die. Which well, is kind of too bad because it's... another it's, one then. Yeah, it's like a crazy good one. Like it's going to be like three or four hundred bucks to replace probably. So I'm really hoping it'll hold on a little longer. But I've had it since 2008, so I can't complain. I mean, that's a good run. Oh, geez. Yeah, that's, that's pretty good mileage out of it. Yeah, so I figure even though it's expensive, I'll buy the same brand again because that's crazy. And I mean, I'm sure I've said it before, but like this is the one that went through the house fire and I dropped it in my friend Mike's toilet. <laughs> like it really could not <laughs> I've dropped it just on the ground a lot of times and it's, it still works, so... Well, it certainly has uh, had its usefulness and lived its life. And most, most of them, I mean, God, would never last that long. Yeah, it's one of those things, too, with, like, audio. Like, every other kind of technology gets cheaper, but audio really doesn't. Like, if you don't pay for good quality, it just sounds like shit. That's all there is to it. So, yeah, but it did turn on, so everything seems okay for now. So that's cool. So uh, I guess uh, the standard boring talk that everybody does, but I really am interested, is... Uh, How's the weather down where you guys are? Oh, it's not bad, you know. So no mountains of snow yet? Four five degrees, goes a little bit below. Uh, I'm just trying to, I've got a little notepad here. I'm just trying to power it up here, trying to plug it in, doing too many things at once. Yeah, it's okay. Uh, it's not bad. No snow. Um, yeah, it's cool, but it is November after all. Right, I guess that's not so bad. I just remember you telling me that, um, you know, that uh, it had dropped below zero already. That was like weeks ago, so I was like, dude, oh. East Coast, brutal. Yeah, because here it's just yeah. like so rainy, like just rainy, like crazy, super gray skies, no, uh, no sun, like, you know, maybe one and a half days a week I see the sun. <laughs> like it's already instant, super dark. It's like, Really? It sounds like you're getting winter weather already. Yeah, so there. it's the Vancouver version of terrible, but, but, you know, it's not that cold and, uh, you know, I don't have my long johns on, <laughs> which I probably would even in Toronto. But yeah, just crazy rainy, crazy dark, every day. We're at the point where you really should have the long johns on. Yeah. Yeah. I, I always... just got my pajama bottoms on half the time. Just pull my jeans on on top of them in the morning. Yeah, I remember the last time I was back in those parts. I had uh, long underwear on by like September. It's just like nuts to this. <laughs> I'm just putting these on. Yeah, I was kind of thinking today, though, about uh, the way I did that Airbnb thing uh, when I first moved here, just, like, renting places by the month. I think that's what I might do, like, uh, like right before I left Toronto, um, there was, like, a thing where they rented, a like, a cottage on a lake, and we all went and hung out, and it was super cool, and the plan is to do that again next summer. But I was thinking I might, uh, if I'm going to fly all the way back to, like, Toronto, I might do that. Like, I might rent an Airbnb place for a month in Toronto, and just go hang out in Toronto for like a whole month. I think that'd be kind of cool. <laughs> just like really not stress about seeing people and hanging out and doing stuff. Like just uh, take a month off of the stupid coffee shop, assuming I still work there and uh, you know, just pay double rent for that one month. I think that'd be pretty cool. Um, would you like to shut down? I'm not gonna read this stupid thing. Yeah, sure. So um, that might not be a bad idea if you're planning like to go back to Vancouver, what keep your place? Yeah, just there. like really take advantage of the fact that uh, I got a pretty uh, loose lifestyle, and I don't really, you know, <laughs> I don't really take advantage of that much. Yeah, because I was thinking about that, and like the idea of paying to fly back to Toronto, because I figure I would, you know, to try to visit. It's expensive, and I just hate that kind of stress of like, oh, I got to see everybody, got to try to do stuff, got to work things in. 
I mean, a month actually seems like too much maybe, but, but renting places by the month on Airbnb, you know, it tends to be cheaper than doing it weekly or daily. So yeah, I was thinking that might be cool. But you don't have to do it by the, by the month, right? You could just right. say you were going to do it for two weeks. Yeah, yeah, I could do that as well. So yeah, we'll see. Because a month really is a pretty long time. But that's uh, just the first thought that came into my mind. I thought that might be kind of neat. So, what should the topic be this time? Uh, so I guess what was mostly on my mind, because I was supposed to call you the other day, and I slept through it, so I didn't. <laughs> but uh, was, uh, it was the day after Remembrance Day was when I was originally going to call you. And uh, I was just thinking about uh, Remembrance Day, and I don't know, it was one of those things like I always kind of liked, like going to the Cenotaph thing in Marysville, kind of like going to like Midnight Mass on Christmas Eve, and just like, no particular reason, I just kind of thought it was a cool thing, I didn't really know what it's all about or have any particular connection to it, but I just thought it was kind of cool. So, uh, did you do any of that this year? I didn't go out this year, I usually do, and, and I do have connections, because my father, your grandfather, right. was, of course, a, a vet in World War Two, was overseas for, oh, I think about 1942 until about 1946, 47. Um, but I didn't go this year, because uh, Neil and I went and did a road trip around uh, the backwoods of New Brunswick through Whirl and Wellsford and Fredericton Junction. and. But as we came up through New Maryland, holy Moses, there were a load of cars. Like, the (laughs) road was lined, I'm going to say, with cars probably from our house down to where the giant tiger is. Man, yeah, it's the the wrong way to come back, I guess. Maybe even further. And I think what it was so popular this year is, uh, because the Cenotaph turnouts were really big, there's a big story here where somebody had ripped all the plaques, not all the plaques, but... They had taken the brass plaques off those big stones that are um, have the vet, veterans' names on them. Right. They took one one off the cenotaph in Barker's Point, and then the big the big uh, uh, Remembrance Day marker, memorial marker that's over at the cenotaph in across from the cathedral in Fredericton. Right. On three sides, it had brass plaques. They took they took the three. Jeez. What, are you, what would and, you even uh, do with they, those? Like, that's just pointless vandalism, right? Like, there's nothing no, to do with No, no, they can turn them in for, uh, they were brass. They, apparently brass is worth quite a bit of money in the recycle market. Really? <laughs> so, they, like... so they took them off, and they ground the names off, and then they took them down to Best Metals and turned them in. But they weren't, they took, they took one in the first time, and the guys at Best Metals bought it, not realizing what it was. It was just like a big piece of flat brass. Uh but they were on video camera. Uh, anyway, they went back about two days later with the other with the other ones. I think they got about 100 or 120 bucks per plaque. And uh, by that time, Best Metals knew what it was because it was all over the news about how these had been taken off the cenotaph. And uh, anyway, they went back with the other ones and the cops got them on video that day. Didn't catch them right away though, but they could tell who they were. They just didn't know where they were, <laughs> where they were. Anyway, there was a big rah-rah-rah about that, and uh, they had new plaques made that were available for a cenotaph. Uh, but I think that's why there was such a big turnout, because people were really ticked off about it. You know, hearing, geez, what a dirty, rotten, sacrilege thing to do. And, and that's really not a very forward-thinking plan. Like, Fredericton's just not that big. Like, you'd have to at least go to St. John or something to sell these things, you know? But then I guess yeah, you think. Well, the no, they sold them here Fredericton. Man. Well, then another thing they did, they went down to, there's a there's an old church, a Methodist church, I think it might be, down in Sheffield that celebrated its 200th birthday two years ago, whatever. 
they have a big a big stone cairn outside of the church and on it are the names of some of the first loyalists who settled down there in the late 1700s and they stole that one so this is not just somebody going by committing vandalism this is somebody who's gone in there with tools so that they could take them off take the things off the granite yeah, it's really not worth, I mean, for the amount of effort that's got to be and coordination and even just to get up the gumption to do it. So you get 120 bucks, are you kidding? Like, it's really not worth it. <laughs> that's not it. Yeah, and I suppose you sell all the plaques at, let's say, 100. They had, there were four of them that disappeared, four or five. You know, you'd end up with four or 500 bucks. Right. Man, that's pretty sad. I was even just thinking, like, how... Uh, I mean, it's not like I get paid a lot at this coffee shop, but, you know, if I get these checks that are, like, 600 bucks... It's like, I don't even know what to do with that money. And all I had to do was hang out at a coffee shop. And, you know, I mean, it's a miserable, but, like, I don't know, money's not that hard to get. <laughs> I always think, like, schemes like that are so weird, too, because they're not perpetual, you know? Like, sure, I may not like selling cheesecake to people, but I can sell cheesecake until robots take over that job and get paid way more than these jerk-offs are getting paid, <laughs> you know? I don't well, know. the I thing that, that ticked people off so much, too, is not that, it, that even that they just took the plaques, but that these were plaques that had these names engraved on them. Yeah, it's particularly And they've been there uncool. since, I mean, I don't know how long that cenotaph's been over there. Most of the cenotaphs were, were built, though, um, about, like, the war ended in 1918. Like, most of them were built after the First World War. So between, let's say, 1918 and the early 1920s, 1923, I think somebody mentioned 1923 is when the Fredericton Cenotaph Memorial went up. So, it, you know, those that's been there since Almost then. 100 years, yeah, damn. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> anyway, so, so I think that's why there was such a huge turnout here. Uh, people, and I didn't go to Marysville, but uh, I know people that did, and they said, oh my god, there were tons of people out there. That's the thing, too, like, for that little amount of money, it's like, if you could only know, you know, somehow, you could just, like, give them 500 bucks and just be like, don't do that. <laughs> you know? Don't, don't be such a pain in everyone's ass. I wonder if they have uh, records of what all the names were. I hope so. For, like, fixing Yeah, them. they did. They, they did, and apparently they, when they, they... These weren't... These plaques that they had ready for Remembrance Day weren't installed, but they are ready, and eventually I presume they will be reinstalled. Right. Um, because it was only about a week before that all this happened. Yeah, and so another weird thing I, did, I heard... Even that too, I like... Well, I was going to say, that's, like, what? really bad planning. Like, of all the times of year to do this, it's the worst time. <laughs> like, holy yep, fuck. just before Remembrance Day. Right, go on. Um, and the other weird thing, I had never heard this before. Um, I was working down bingo last Wednesday night, and I had two poppies on because I had my first one, and then I thought I had lost it, but I was down in Wellsford, and a legionnaire, I, I, it dropped out of the car, in the car, so a, a legion guy was in there selling them, so I bought another one. It was, you know, 10.30 in the morning or whatever, and I thought, oh, yeah, well, now I got, went back up the car, found my other one, I had two on. Went down to bingo to work on Wednesday night, some guy comes up to me and says, um, oh, I hope you won't be mad if I tell you this, you know, but do you realize you're supposed to take your poppy off at 11 o'clock in the morning? And I said, well, really? Geez, I just bought it. I just bought it like about 10.30. I felt I should wear it all day. He said, oh, no, 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 you're not supposed to do that. Um, apparently at 11 o'clock, which was when the armistice was signed in 1918, um, you're supposed to take it off. And he said, Did, weren't you ever at any of those services where... The veterans take them off and they put them on a big cross. And I said, oh, yeah, I saw them doing that. But 
I said, anyway, whatever. I don't care. Right. <laughs> I think that if you're going to wear your property, you should honor them all day long. You shouldn't just stop at 11 o'clock. He said, oh, no, I was just telling you. They just told me that. So I thought, wasn't that odd in all these years of, you know, being the daughter of a vet and going out to the Senate? I'd never heard that before. So I went into the kitchen and... Somebody else, and it was in there, said, uh, do you realize you're supposed to take those poppies off at 11 o'clock in the morning? I said, well, really? I said, yeah, I did hear that, but I don't care. I'm wearing it all day anyhow. Yeah, that's... that's then the other thing that she reminded me of is she said uh, her father used to always have in his car a great big poppy, you know, man-made poppy, with a sticker thing on the back, and he had it in the car window, in the windshield. And I said, yeah, you know what? I forgot all about that, but my father did too. For years, we drive around with this big poppy sticking on the windshield of the car, just below the mirror. Um, and I said, you know what? He never took that down. It was all faded and worn out by the time Remembrance Day came around, but that poppy was always in the car. So I don't know if that's just some load of hokum bullshit that somebody's brought up recently about taking it off at 11 o'clock or if it was always that way yeah i mean it's it's interesting if he's just like if you know they're just like oh here's an interesting thing maybe you didn't know like that's like okay cool it's kind of neat to know but the other side of that of like well you just got to do the rules do the little thing that everyone does mm. like man i hate that stuff <laughs> it drives me nuts yeah, but my father was a legion member until he died and right. he was always going to the legion and he was always involved in those marching in the the little march there at the Cenotaph every blessed year I'm sure if there was a rule like that he would have said to us kids take those poppies off it's 11 o'clock but he never said that so I don't think I think that's a bunch of horse shit <laughs> I always got the uh, the other side of that where it even happened this year where I bought a poppy on like November 2nd or something and somebody was like oh already huh? already with the poppy and that like gave me this flashback to when I was in like 7th grade and I was wearing one particularly early, like end of October maybe. And same thing, some kid was just like, well, you're not supposed to. And it's like, well, you guys all just calm the fuck down. <laughs> like, you know, this is just rules that someone made up that don't mean anything. And I don't know, I might be reading too much into it, but I always feel like stuff like that is like, just a sort of emblematic of like, if you follow these rules, what rules won't you follow? Like you're just in yeah. a dumb little society box for your whole life. And it's like, will you just calm down? You know, if you want to wear a poppy all year long, why the hell can't you? Yeah, sure. I actually saw a guy just uh, like after Remembrance Day wearing the poppy, and I did notice like, oh, that's interesting. He's uh, still wearing it. No one else is. But yeah, I, I bet he. I wonder if he got hit by that out here in Vancouver, like someone told him. Hey, you know, by the way. Yeah, I don't know. I just think that's. So uh, yeah, that was the other thing I was going to ask about is uh, about your dad and war stuff. Like, did. Uh, I mean, I don't know, did I ever, ever even technically meet your dad? Like, even when I was just a little kid who doesn't remember? Uh, yes, because you were... Uh, dad died in January of 1984. Oh, okay. So, so yeah, I was around for you, a while. You would have been... And we went down, I went down to visit, and you were with me. We went down for just after Christmas, and he died in... About a month after that, so we went down just after Christmas. So you know, you and I and Mark and I presume Neil too, probably. I don't remember if he was there or not, but he probably was. Um, so yeah, yeah, you you had met my father a few times. Yeah, mostly just uh, I, I only really know his his bedroom in uh, that house on uh, Campobello Island, where I always thought it was cool that we were allowed to just go into his old bedroom and just check it out because it was like that's where I found out that Andy Cap used to be funny. 
like those original Andy Cap books. I even just read a couple like recently. I got some from a thrift store and like from the, the 60s or maybe even earlier. Like the Andy Cap was hilarious, man. I mean, he was... Okay, drunk. just take a break. I got to go give a $10 yeah. to Tina. She's at the door. It'll be just yeah. a second. Yeah, no problem. All right, I'm back. Cool. Yeah, I was just going to say those old Andy Caps, like he was just a weird, drunken, you know, brawling wife beater. <laughs> and it was all written in like the dialect of his weird British accent. But it was yeah, super British funny. Cockney. Yeah, whereas like then from like the 70s and the 80s and on into perpetuity, like that thing was not funny at all. But it used to be really funny. And uh, I remember there was a bunch of like Von Bode books. They did like the Cheech Wizard, but I remember they were like a lot of them were colored in. Like, I remember the room smelled a lot like uh, cigars, and, and yeah, I guess your dad just sat in there and kind of colored comics, and <laughs> I don't know, I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, he did. He did. He colored a lot of comics, and the, the tobacco was Bond Street. It wasn't uh, cigars. Bond Street tobacco from a pipe. Hmm. A lot of those guys that were, were in, the, in World War II... Uh, I'm sure there were a lot of cigarette smokers, too, but it seemed to be the fad to smoke pipes. And you see pictures of a lot of those, uh, they would have been young men um, in their 20s overseas, but they oftentimes have a pipe in their mouth. Well, Dad always smoked a pipe, never smoked cigarettes. Right. <laughs> yeah, I guess, uh, I don't know, yeah, I guess I've never smelled a pipe. I don't know that I've ever met anybody that smokes a pipe, <laughs> but, but yeah, I guess cigars are the closest smell that I could associate it with. Well, every once in a while I'm watching old uh, black and white uh, movies that would be about World War Two, and oftentimes, yeah, you see these these um, young guys that were over there, and they'd have a pipe in their mouth. It's kind of like probably maybe they got the habit of it if they were over there, like they have their tobacco pouch. And well, you carry a pipe, it would would stand up better than cigarettes that might get soggy uh, if you're in a damp area. Like, um, well, your pipe, your pipe would always stand you in good stead. Yeah, that Whereas makes if sense. you converted it into cigarettes, they'd pick up moisture and the paper maybe wouldn't be so crap, shit hot. Yeah, or if they break or something, yeah, then they're no good. Yeah, I'm always surprised how uh, it's, like, a stuff that seems really old to me, like, you don't really have to stretch back that far. Like, when I think pipes, I mostly think, like, Popeye, <laughs> and that's, like, the 20s or whatever. But really, it's just two generations back. Or uh, that guy Scarborough dude that I know. I mean, he's in his 60s or whatever. I guess he's like he's a little older than you guys, I think, than you and Dad. But uh, but his his grandparents were like came over from England, like from Victorian England, <laughs> you know. And like that's serious history book shit. But it's just his grandparents, you know. So that's like one, two, like four generations back. I don't know. It's surprising to me how it's not. Yeah, well, see, that our, far. my grandparents. Uh, I think on mother's side, yeah, they were here already, but on my father's side, um, his mother was right out of England. Came over here around, uh, I don't know, 1911, maybe? Right. 1912. She was a, a young woman that came over here and started doing housekeeping. But I don't, I don't know a whole lot about that side, of, uh, about dad's side of the family. No more, much more about mom's. But, uh, yeah, they would have been... Uh, I think I think his father was already uh, here. I don't know where his family would have come from. Oh, from Wales, because I've got some letters here uh, that uh, were written. Oh God, I got a whole chest full of old history stuff. But would have been written. I'm going to say 
the 1920s, uh, and it talks about uh, your great-grandfather being overseas in World War One, and he just disappeared. That's a weird, I have to tell you about that someday. That's a real weird, weird story about him. Um, and I'd like to do a little more research in it and find out what happened, get his war records or something. He just kind of disappeared. How old was he? I don't know. I guess he already had kids, know. right? So, obviously. Well, he had one child. Right. Who was born when he he was uh, overseas. Wow. And that one child was born, never saw him. Yeah, that's weird. So, like, he was doing war military stuff when he disappeared? Yeah, and... uh there's letters in this stuff uh, where his wife, your grandmother, is trying to get a pension from the government because she's saying that he he died in service, and the government is saying that he kind of went AWOL. Right. But there's never anything to back it up. And I remember our, my mother, always saying, oh, I don't think grandmother's smart, you know, always you know, trying to get something out of the government or whatever. Well, gee, she was a widow woman, and she had a, a young child she was raising. Maybe she was entitled to it. Yeah, and that's pretty... And I've I mean, often thought, they say that he went AWOL, but where did he go? Yeah, um, like, isn't that the, what's that saying, Occam's razor? Like, if you're in the military and you disappear, you're probably dead. <laughs> you know, well, chances are. And how many how many bodies would they have lost in the battlefield where people just got blown up? And yeah. how would you know who the hell died in there or what happened to them? Or maybe he had PTSD, which everybody's got nowadays. But maybe, you know, imagine you're in those trenches and all you're doing is listening to that, that um, those uh, bombs going off and that noise and that dirt. That feel. Maybe you do go a little nuts and you go have a nervous breakdown and you take off and you don't know who you are anymore or whatever. I mean, maybe. Who knows? Yeah, I would have been all about, if I was in any military situation, I would have been all about escape. <laughs> that would have been all I would have done, is just to get out of there. Did I ever tell but there's this? a very loving letter that he writes. It's, it's in this in this trunk of stuff that I've got, where he's just found out that his wife has given birth to a baby, and he's gotten the notice from some nurse, um, and it's in there. And he writes a very loving letter back. Now, why would you then, all of a sudden just run away nobody ever hears from you again and you never make contact if you're still around because that's what the government was saying to her when they were refusing these pensions um is that because he could not be um definitely declared dead that they wouldn't pay and she kept you know kind of going after him she never got it but my thing now is, after all these years, well, how do they know? Yeah. How do they know what happened to him? How do they know he didn't die in the battlefield? How do they know that he ran away? And if he did, maybe he had good reason to run away. But maybe he was kind of, uh, maybe he had a complete mental breakdown of some kind. Um, who could blame him for that? And because it seems funny that you just never, ever, if you were, if you were like going on the lamb and just deserting. And you were right as rain. You'd never make contact with anybody ever. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's a, uh, the I guess like the the sort of less the the saddest thing would be if if he did run away, but he didn't get in contact because he assumed there was like a pension thing and he didn't want to mess it up. But who knows? I mean, chances are I would still lean toward he's probably just dead. But 
for his sake, hopefully not. Hopefully he got to go, even if it's a guilt-filled life, it's better than being killed. Hopefully he just got to run off and do some other thing. Nah, I suspect he just, uh, yeah, he he just went off, and maybe he went off and killed himself or something. Who knows? Yeah. Especially but there the, was never anything to prove any of it. And the military of all, you know, institutions, like, oh, he's probably fine. He's probably not dead. Like, your whole, your base, your whole thing is to make people be dead. <laughs> like, you could at least presume when people disappear that they died. Well, see, nowadays you'd, uh, you'd just, uh, you'd get your pension and you'd get all kinds of things. But when you hear those stories of, like, 6,000 were in the battle that day. How the hell do they know what happened to anybody? Yeah, particularly back then. I mean, even in, like, modern times, I remember uh, Louis C.K. had this little story about how he got arrested once because he was trying to go through a a toll bridge in New York and he didn't have any license or registration for his car and no money. Like, just the most ridiculous situation. And they put him in this prison in Newark, New Jersey. And, uh, And he had to kind of, like fight to stay in the initial holding cell because once people get put into the general prison population like even within a prison in a modern time where everything is very bureaucratic they just kind of lose you and you're just there for months before anybody digs you out and gets you out of the stupid jail so yeah i mean a six thousand person battle in a hundred years ago like yeah of course no one knows what the hell was going on (laughs) yeah i mean they they Although they I would guess, have been keeping a little paper record somewhere on some battlefield somewhere. I guess on the other hand, though, that also is uh, the optimal time to run away. <laughs> so I guess it goes both ways. But yeah, that's interesting. And of course, there was great shame in, in, in desertion sure. in those days. And, and if, you know, if, if the man did desert, um, well, you know what? There were probably reasons for it, because that's another thing. If you've been over there since 1914, and now it's 1917, and you suddenly disappear, well, God knows what kind of hell and horror you had to live through. And it, it, But that's something that we've only been looking at in the last, you know, last generation. Well, since the Vietnam War, when all the Yahoo yippie types, hippie types like me, and um, any number of others started making big things saying that war is wrong and all the marching and all that you know it's only been since then that we've kind of really seriously looked at all the horrors of war before that it was eh, the glory of the country and get in there and get yourself shot all up yeah i've heard too uh, that um world war one in some ways was like the most brutal one because that's when technology was really ramping up and there was mustard gas and automatic weapons but there was just no sense of like the rules of engagement or anything like like it was like kind of the most harsh one in some ways oh yeah and i mean and they had the no man's land there where for years they just you know it was a war of attrition they just kind of sat back and forth and you might move a foot this way and then move a foot back and you lived in the mud and for weeks in those in those dirty filthy trenches and when it would rain they'd fill up with water and you'd be living in there and there'd be rats floating around with you trying to survive just like you were and you'd scale the battle the over the top and again you might gain a foot or two can you imagine a foot you're getting all blasted all to hell and the ground's all beat up to shit and all you did was gain a foot yeah and then the next battle, they take it back, and it's a foot. Like, and that went on for years over there. God. Yeah, I would absolutely. Like, uh, there's this writer I like, this guy, William Gibson. He lives here in Vancouver, and he uh, he was like a Vietnam deserter guy who 
left the States and ran up to Canada and basically has been in Canada ever since. And I'm like absolutely on his side. Like I would do anything to not be in a military situation. I mean, I could give a shit. My whole country could burn to the ground. I don't care. <laughs> you know, like there's a, somewhere else in the world I can go or something, you know, like there's just, yeah, that's ludicrous. Well, and those poor suckers that went over there, um, they had no idea what they were getting into. Nobody did. It was, you know, for king and country, and everybody, all these young fellas signed up from over here in Canada, had never been off the farm, most of them. Yeah, and I guess I think we talked about that before on this podcast when we were talking about that uh, the mouse comic about World War II, about how people didn't really know what happened in World War II, the scope of it, until later. So, like, that's one reason Vietnam was such a powder keg was because there was cameras and people could actually see what it was, and they're like, Jesus Christ, (laughs) what is this? Yeah, and there wasn't the censorship that, not that they didn't want it to be censored, they did. But there were enough independent uh, um, photographers and uh, newspaper writers that were over there who were reporting that. And you had TV that made it instant so that that battle happened and those horrible pictures happened. And in no time at all, they were produced to the public. But World War II didn't have that, but there was no TV. So everything had to be in writing, and by the time it went through channels, it was all um, marked out and things that were uh, would make the war seem like a terrible thing. That was all uh, uh, blacklisted, never, never, never got published, never got released. And even though guys were were reporting it, they had to go through certain channels to get it issued, and it took time. So that gave the government all kinds of time to make sure that only the best stories got out, the big rah-rah stories, whereas in Vietnam, that that didn't happen. Um, that shit got out, and it got published, like, quickly. It's actually, uh, it's really kind of, uh, just from, this is my perspective on how it seems like things are shaken out, but it seems kind of impressive now how how much, like, the world has changed in that sense of, like, not thinking war is some great thing or whatever. So obviously last Friday in Paris, there was this super crazy thing where like 130 people got killed. And uh, man, I remember when I, like I was working all day at the coffee shop and I got back home at like midnight and I saw that news story on like Facebook news and I was like, what? <laughs> like, what are you even talking about? How is that possible? But what I think is interesting about that is it's only Monday now, so it's only been a few days, but how different the reaction is from even like September 11th where you know, America, man, I fucking, America, I'm so over them, I just hate the fucking Americans, and I was like, all they did was use that to start a big war and be a bunch of crazy assholes, and like, it was just ridiculous, whereas this thing with Paris, obviously, it's super horrifying that all these people got killed by, I think it was like eight, eight terrorists, and what it was is it's like people that were from France who moved to the Middle East, like, had Middle Eastern roots, and then came back, and that's kind of like how they got into the country, is like, they sort of were you know, brought into this this terrorism fold by visiting. But what's interesting is after that initial shock passed, like then the kind of narrative that I've been seeing with like internet news stories and stuff is that like 120 people or so died in Paris, but the day before that, 30 people died in some place in the Middle East, and the day before that, 40 people died in another place in the Middle East. Like, it literally happens every day in the Middle East, and nobody gives a shit. Nobody pays attention. The, like, world news is only focused on the Western world. 
And I just think that's kind of interesting that instead of this like American style, we just got to go get revenge and we got to start a big war and we got to be a bunch of crazy assholes. Like without condoning, obviously, what happened, like at least seeing it in a little bit more of a light. Because if you look at it that way, like if you were Middle Eastern and France was actually involved in some of these like bombings and stuff, if like 30 people get killed by French bombs and nobody gives a shit, I don't know, I could really, I could almost see myself. Like if I was just crazy enough and just the right kind of person and just like incensed enough, it's like someone... How is anyone going to pay attention? Well, maybe I'll go blow up a bunch of people in Paris, you know? Like, like it, it doesn't... People talk about, oh, it's like all these complicated situations and you can never understand all the little details, but it doesn't seem that complicated to me, really. And I like that the sort of world view of this isn't that American-style retaliation. It is more like, like, if we don't want this to happen again, maybe we're, maybe we're really approaching world politics really wrong, you know? I think that's, that's pretty amazing that, like, things have changed that much. Well, that's one thing that, that we have a media that is is not completely one-sided. Right. And that is the difference, too, with in World War II. It was all one-sided. You The pe- people heard what the governments wanted them to hear, and that was all. Everything else was heavily censored. I mean, and you had ra- really the only way that people could could get news was newspaper and radio. And radios, uh, well, when you when you watch it on TV, I mean, I wasn't there, but you you know, people will just listen to the news. They would have heard earlier in the day maybe the king was going to be on giving a message at nine o'clock, so everybody would turn on the radio and tune in at nine o'clock. There would probably have been one radio station. And so you heard what it, what the government, and the government would have controlled that. It's not like today where you can just keep clicking channels and get a whole different perspective on whichever, whatever you're listening to. You can even tune into these, those European ones. You can even turn into Syrian radio if you wanted to. Yeah. And hear what's going on over there. So you get there, if you're really interested, there is all kinds of different perspectives that you have access to which is something uh, quite uh, entirely different than it would have been 70 years ago in the in the 1940s. Yeah, I definitely think when uh, history looks back, like that uh, kind of turn of the century, like early 1900s times of, uh, you know, like cars and uh, factories and electric power and stuff and airplanes, like that big shift where everything changed from the rural type world. This exact same thing is happening now, like the before the internet and after the internet, it's like definitely the history books are going to be like, it was a, a different thing, yeah, because you could, you could want to, to have a clearer worldview all you want, but yeah, like how, how do you get it? You just, you know, you just know what people tell you, whereas now it really is like you can't not have that perspective, you know, like you can try to be all like, rah, rah, oh my God, let's go fight everybody, and you just like can't help but be confronted with the rest of the world going like, hey, fuck you, calm down, <laughs> you know, it's kind of, it's, it's interesting, it does seem like it's been for the best, like, overall, it's a, it's a neat thing. Yeah, well, there's always two sides to every story, and, uh, you know, I'm not condoning what, what those uh, terrorists did either. Um, well, where but- it gets extra psycho is where most of the people died, it was at a concert, and that's where, like, over, I think it's like 100 people, like, the vast majority of the people that, it, it wouldn't have been... I hate to say not that bad, but 
but all the uh, the other attacks were like small like four people died here eight people died there but these people got trapped in this concert hall and uh, this is where like yeah there's nothing definitely nothing righteous about these particular terrorists because apparently for like 15 or 20 minutes they just like they had everybody like lay down and you know everyone was scared and then they just kept shooting people for like 15 straight minutes they're just shooting people and it's like dude you guys are fucking psycho <laughs> like that is beyond any kind of a message or any kind of a noble anything that's fucking crazy so yeah obviously they're fucking nutbags like total nutbags but the uh the thing i found was kind of odd is that um there's a big summit supposedly i don't know if it's going to go ahead or not but that big environmental summit that's set for paris I think it was this week or next week. Next week, I think it. Geez, you think if you wanted to make some big impact, that's where you'd do it. Yeah, seriously, just some wait of the a big head honchos. Instead of just wiping out, you know, Joe Q's Joe Q citizen who hasn't done anything to anybody. He's just at a concert enjoying the concert. Um, yeah, you want to have a big impact? You try to go after some of those big head honchos who were. I know there'd be would have been a lot of security if, at that time, but that's when you do it. Yeah, maybe maybe they, they like really maybe they couldn't like maybe it's really not realistic because man I'm always surprised like after September 11th I was sure that type of stuff was going to start happening all the time like it seems not that hard to do to coordinate but it, maybe it really is like even with this stuff in in Paris apparently they already had their eye on a couple of these people like like it I don't know it's just like surprising to me how how tough it is to not be noticed <laughs> you know when you have these kinds of plans so yeah maybe because i'm just thinking of that g12 summit that was in toronto that place was a police state it was fucking crazy i've never seen canada look like that so maybe it'd be the same thing in paris and that just would not be realistic that they could do anything so, yeah maybe probably that's the thing too with like the concert hall thing i mean it's uh it's just a dangerous environment in general because there's always those stories about like a fire will happen at at a rock show and a shit ton of people die like it's just a death trap anyway <laughs> you know <laughs> like it seems weird to say but like that many people could have died if there was a fire and the doors were locked you know so i think probably it, more yeah probably more so i mean that's yeah literally the only reason so many people died i think is just because uh i don't know there's just something about concerts they're just particularly horrible and dangerous <laughs> when something goes wrong just like a lot well, of people and, trapped in a place they can't get out of and see that was that's the 9-11 story yeah yes go it's on true and on about how those terrorists killed all those people no they didn't i still the collapse of those buildings is what killed all those people i really always kind of wonder like if i could somehow interview the ghost of <laughs> one of those terrorists like or or anybody that was involved in it like, did they really think that was going to happen? Because it was so surprising to watch that building fall. Like, how did that even... Oh, there's no way. There's no way they could have known that yeah, that like, was going to happen. Like, I figure they even figured they... they were going to fly into that, those buildings, and yes, there'd be some people who would be killed, but nobody foresaw that those buildings were just going to drop to the ground like a stone. Yeah. They were, they were there one minute, and the next thing is like, whoa, they're gone. And yeah, I even kind of suspect, like, yeah, those, the terrorists were probably even watching the news and just being like, fuck, like, <laughs> you know, is that what we just did? Like, Jesus Christ. Well, I wonder if there's a moment of being taken aback of like, yeah, we wanted to kill some people, but what the fuck does a lot of people? <laughs> like, I don't know. Maybe I'm humanizing them too much, but. 
And they might have thought, oh, yeah, well, if they went into the upper levels, there would be fire and people above might not be able to get down because they'd be caught in fire. But I'm sure they had no inkling that those buildings would collapse like that. Yeah. I mean, who would think it? <laughs> and I guess that's where all the conspiracy theory stuff came from. But I guess it does seem like it's just jet fuel is just like real hot. <laughs> it's just like crazy hot. Yeah, that was weird, too, because I'm especially at that time, you know, I was like out of high school and just bumming around your house mostly. But uh, so I was never awake that early ever. But um, that guy, Jay Arnold, who works at Strange Adventures now, after the first plane hit, he called the house because I think that's when Dan was living in the Dan Hutch, <laughs> you know, just like sleeping in our house. And uh, so he called and he was like, dude, have you seen what's going on in the news? So I turned it on and I like saw the second plane hit like live. And I'm just like, how weird is that? Like, I'm literally never awake in the morning or back then. But I saw that happen and it's like, what the fuck? Are you really <laughs> like, what the fuck? Yeah, that was crazy. And it's I remember, yeah, I, I was watching, and I, I didn't see when it initially happened, but it was played over and over and over and over and over and over again. And they they just kept showing those planes going into the building, and then it, then it was. I think I was actually watching it um, when... No, I wasn't. I was at work. I wasn't watching it. I don't have a TV at work. But anyway, later on... I don't know where I was. The TV was on, and when I, I, you know, you're watching the fire, and and then you can hear all these, you know, people are leaving the building and all this shit, and the next thing you know, boom, there she goes, down to the ground, bunch of, like, wow, holy, I mean, that was pretty friggin' spectacular. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that, um, that newspaper, The Onion, that's like the, it's like a parody newspaper, that was their their headline like you know they gave it a few days uh, you know not to be disrespectful but it was just holy fucking shit <laughs> and every picture they would say like and here's a scene not from an action movie this happened because <laughs> that's what it looked like it looked just like a transformers movie or something yeah well but yeah I no doubt that those guys had no those guys when they flew those planes in there you know what i, I doubt that they even gave any thought as to what was going to happen anyway they were just going to fly a plane, kill themselves, and go into those buildings. That's probably as far as they thought. They didn't think about who would live, who would die, how many people they would wipe out. Um, it was just, we have our job, that's what we're going to do. We're going to fly those planes into those tall buildings. Yeah, Period. One, one thing, too, like, uh, I mean, I really, I did really, in general, did not get along so well with uh, America and its Americans when I was down there, but... But, like, they they would, you know, uh, it's just this weird thing of, like, they want to be all rah, 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 and, like, we're number one, and we're the best, and we're the number one world power. But they also, like, want people to feel bad for them. Like, in the 2008 especially, when I was there, that was, like, the economic downturn. And it's like, dude, there's been an ec economic downturn every decade. Like, calm the fuck down. But they're all like, oh, it's so sad. We don't have as much money as we used to have. And they're also just like, why does everyone hate us? I don't understand why everyone hates America. And it's like, dude, like you took September 11th and you fucking two for two terms had the worst president, <laughs> you know, and just like had a crazy war that wasn't even with the right people. Like I, like, I like that history has really like turned on America on that one. Like everybody was on America's side for like 2001 and probably 2002. And then it's just been a constant decline ever since of like, you guys are such assholes. Like you could not have handled this worse. And just like used it as an excuse to just be America. 
Well, they've been going down this road, though, for quite a long while. They were a country that was so isolationist in the early part of this century, didn't want to have any, really any involvement with the rest of the world, other than kind of getting involved in some countries and pulling the imperialistic thing like everybody was doing. Um, but then after World War II, they kind of got, uh, they got real aggressive. And that's when they started getting the downturn. They just went from, oh, you know, we don't want to be involved. We just want to do our own thing, blah, blah, blah. And then the Korean War is where it really started. It was probably started in World War II a little bit. But then that was finished pretty quickly. And then they were in Korea. They took over. They, you know, they were going to fight the communists in there. That's when that started. And then, oh, about 20 years later? No, not even 20 years later early 60s they were in vietnam the french got out um and they walked right in there and there again we're gonna take over and gonna wipe out the commies and 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 did a whole lot of shit in vietnam that really was you know blowing up villages that had no claim to anything just a bunch of peasants living in those villages and burning them and burning whole countrysides with napalm and and see, that's what, they, they, you know, they probably did it, always did it, but that's when they got caught, because right. there were the cameras. So that's when it, it when it really started. And then they were involved, like in Cuba, you know, they, you got a Castro taking over down there and getting the Americans out. Well, they were going to go down there and blow them off the face of the earth, too, with the Cuban Missile Crisis, which almost started as World War Three. That was in Kennedy's time. And then it's just gone on and on, and they've had their fingers in pies all over the world that they they shouldn't have their fingers in, but they want the oil, and they want the gold, and they want they want all this shit. And that's really what it's really all about. It's not about human rights or helping people develop civilization. It's, it's the natural resources that those countries have that the Americans want to exploit. In some ways, too, like the Nazis are like the greatest thing that ever happened to the American military complex. Like they are such like cartoon villains, like so clearly, unbelievably horrible. And there just hasn't been an enemy like that ever since. <laughs> you know, it's like you can't really see the Nazis' side of things. They're like, all right, this is insane what you guys are doing. But everybody else has always got some kind of sanity on their side, and you know, just. Yeah, I think America misses their cartoon villains. I mean, they tried to make Russia be a cartoon villain, but even Russia, Russia is just a crazy, fucked-up, poor place, really. <laughs> you know. As I see the uh, the United States, it's almost like uh, like those. It's like those big empires, the Greeks, the Romans, you know, the Nazis. Um, they start rotting from the inside, and they are rotting from the inside. So their their time is like an uh, empire. Is, is on the downswing, as I saw. That's what I see. They've had their heyday. You know, and their heyday the... was probably when they were being isolationist. Right. <laughs> Although it's funny that even from the fucking get-go, it was still a lot of like, hey, let's bring over slaves and let's kill a bunch of Indians. And like, <laughs> you know, the whole goddamn country is just like, like their, their take, their little narrative they live by is like, yeah, we're totally manifest destiny and we're like home of the brave, land of the free, land of liberty. But I mean, it's just built on slavery and genocides from day fucking one, <laughs> you know? Like. Yep, and when they got laws in their own country, which kind of stopped them from doing that, well, they just went on to other parts of the world and did it. Yeah, And they're totally. still doing it. <laughs> they're still doing it. So. 
Yeah, and it's not like I'm the most worldly person in the world, but man, it's like palpable when you live in the States for a while, how they don't know anything about anything else. Like they have no sense of the world outside of America and it's very unpleasant. And that's oftentimes when I say you start you start rotting from the inside out. If you don't want to take the time to learn about other cultures that you're involved with or how to perhaps assist them um, when it's always all about you, well, eventually um, it's gonna you're gonna start falling apart. Even and a, they are. This is on a sort of a different scale. It's, it's a little bit related though. It's, of all the places, I was reading a book about Bill Murray and. Uh, he said this thing I thought was really interesting, like just another little simple thing that I never really thought of, is the reason why he says he's really fed up with politics in America is the two sides are always like fighting each other and trying to discredit each other rather than any sense of actually trying to build something or to make anything better. It's like they really just want the other side to lose. And that does seem very American, like the very, very, that weird competitive attitude they have is just like, ugh. Well, they can't even take the time to get to know their neighbors in their own uh, hemisphere. Right. Like, we're so we're so much like them. We speak the same language. We look like them, everything else. But they don't know anything about us. Yeah, and, and I mean, Mexico, and, forget and about the, it. Jesus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, those, 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 those third world guys that live to the south of them. Um, oh, yeah, you know what? They're just good enough to come in here and be our... Slaves. And they're still talking house. about, like, uh, Donald Trump was like, you know, I have an actual plan to build a wall. Like, you make me president, we can do this. <laughs> we can actually build a wall across America. And it's like, dude, <laughs> no, like, you d- really don't see that this, like, this plane is going down? Like, <laughs> it's just so nuts. Yeah, although it's weird, too. Like, uh, I guess, like, I, uh, to give America some credit, uh, like I do think really the only reason Canada is such a in such a good position is because we're just right next to America and uh, and that's one thing an American guy in a podcast said that it was kind of an interesting point I never thought of before is how crazy it is that you know America spends so much money on military and they don't have health care you know and just like what a crazy warmonger country they are but his um, his take on that, which is definitely true with Canada and could be true for most of the Western world, is that it's because America is so just overwhelming with their military craziness that the other Western countries don't have to be that way. You know, like maybe there would yeah, be a lot point. more terrorism. And like, because even that thing in, in France, like it was surprising to learn like that it was all people that were citizens of France and that's the only way they got into the country and through the basic barriers of entry is because they were French citizens who moved away and then came back with these crazed terrorism ideas. Like, yeah, like the the Western world, I guess that's one reason why it's so shocking when something happens, because it never happens. Like, there's very rare. There's like September 11th, there's those like London subway bombings, there's Paris. Like, it happens like every 10 years or something where... Yeah, the rest of the world, it happens all the time. And yeah, maybe it's true. Maybe it is just because that hammer of America, you know, is ready to drop at any time. So, hey, maybe. But I still feel like there's a lot they could be doing that would be uh, a lot less insane and a lot better. But like when he put it that way, I was like, yeah, I guess I wouldn't want... I don't know if I would want a world without America having all its military, because then what the heck are we going to (laughs) do? You know? We're in big trouble. Yeah, that's a point. Good point. 
So yeah, you know, I'll give them that. I'll give them that much. But still, come on, it doesn't have to be 800 zillion trillion dollars when you can't even like get your appendix out without paying for it, you know? <laughs> like, come on. And when they've got, well, they've got so much poverty down there and so much wealth. Yeah, that's what I think is interesting too is, uh, I mean, I think, I think my, my attitude definitely could have been better when I was in the States. I mean, I was definitely, uh, you know, I was just trying to get a rise out of people and just getting a lot of dumb fights started and stuff on the, uh, you know, when I was on Keith and the Girl and stuff. But, uh, but, but Canada really does have a better bead on America than they do. Like, I didn't, they don't like to hear it and they don't believe it, but it's like our whole job kind of is just to be the satellite country and just to observe, you know? <laughs> And what, what but we maybe see, that's why we can get a better bead on them. We're smaller and we're removed, so it's easier to look at, see the bigger picture. And we get so much, um, like news, um, our, our entertainment, so much that is American-based, and we buy right into it. Um, and maybe it, maybe that's why we can get a better bead that we can sit back because we're not really part of it. We are we are part of it, but we're not part of it. Yeah, so it'd be, I guess it's too bad when I had my when I had my platform and I had my whatever 50,000 people listening to me. It's too bad I I didn't have a I wasn't mature enough to disseminate that sort of idea a little less explosively instead of just being like your country sucks and I hate you guys. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a good way to start anything. But uh and, and that that whole oh my god they were so mad at me about the uh, that that you know the housing market crash and stuff of 2008 because I would bring up specifically stuff like like your family like fucking uh, so many kids in the poorest part of like like the Maritimes is poor as hell and it's everyone was fine you know like it's not so awful that that maybe people lost some money like I don't know but they did not want to hear it. Because, you know, they just feel entitled, like, well, yeah, but if I can't have a car and I can't have a big screen TV and I can't have this and I can't have that, then, like, what was the American dream all about? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> dude, like, like that's, I guess that was my view kind of of that whole economic crash is, is it was just like a leveling. It was just them kind of coming a little more into line with how everybody else is and only a little like a step closer <laughs> you know and everyone was freaking out it was in the newspapers every day it was all anyone was talking about and i didn't notice any difference i lived there through all of 2008 and half of 2009 and it looked like the exact same country to me with the exact same people doing the exact same shit but they just believe it they just believe the hype of like oh fuck it's all going crazy i thought that was interesting too because then i would read old stuff like uh there's this comic from 1991 called Why I Hate Saturn that's kind of a little bit famous. And in the introduction to that book, the guy was talking about, oh, the economic downturn of the late 80s. And then, of course, there was that, that tech bubble crash of, like, 2001. It's like, these things just keep happening. Why do they lose their fucking minds every time? It's just like an, it's like the ocean, you know? It's in and out. Things can't go up forever. Yeah, I don't know. Just no sense of... of being able to do with less yeah and like they could do with a lot less they could do with like a million times less than they have but if they lose a little bit less like they're just like oh my god it's all going down (laughs) god damn i really yeah i don't know i really three quarters of the rest of the world lives with virtually nothing 
Yeah. I, I mean, I was glad, actually, glad to have lived there just to get that out of my system, to not have any... Because I was like, yay, you know, America, reading Ayn Rand books and fucking, I don't know, even just watching fucking John Ford westerns and stuff. Like, you just get this idea that, like, yeah, America's pretty cool. And then you get there and you're like, oh, it's not cool at all. <laughs> so, well, it was a good experience for you. Yeah. Oh, yeah, so I guess uh, what I was going to get to uh, back at the start, and I guess we got, we're still talking about this general topic, but... Uh, uh, did your dad ever talk much about the war? Do you have any war stories, or was he one of the guys that just didn't really talk about he it? He didn't talk too much. When we were young kids, uh, he occasionally would start to tell us something. But we, you know, were too young to really appreciate it. I'm talking when you're like 10, 11 years old. I can remember he had this big trunk out in our... We had a barn that was at the back of our house in Marysville. And he had this great big stand-up trunk, and it had... All this kind of war paraphernalia in it. It had, like, jackets and helmets and guns. And and I can remember standing around out there a bit while he'd be talking to the boys about it. It never really interested me. But he didn't really... It wasn't really talking about real personal experiences, though. He was one of those guys who, who never talked much about it. There was only one day that... Uh, and I was a grown-up then... I had, I had two kids at that time. I'd gone down to Campobello, and it was pouring rain, and Mom had gone across the border shopping with somebody. So uh, he hauled out some things that day, and he started talking a little bit about it. And then she came home, and that, that conversation finished. Um, but there wasn't, no, there really wasn't that, that much. And I, I kind of, uh, it's something that's too bad that he didn't live longer than he did, uh, because I think as I got older and could appreciate it more, he would have been more, more, uh, probably amenable to talking. Um, but you know, shit, I had kids and was raising kids and working a business and, and that's the story of all the, the, the lives of all kinds of kids of vets who say, you know, too bad, never had the chance. I can see too, though, why the sort of standard thing was to not really talk about it. I mean, it's partially, I guess, just how, you know, how older generations were, but, but also in some ways it's kind of like, well, what's the point? Like, how am I ever going to get across what this was really like with just a few little anecdotes or something, you know? Like, I could see why it might almost cheapen it. Like, maybe it's better just to not bother talking about it. And they were a generation, see, that didn't, uh, they didn't whine and cry about a whole lot of stuff. You've got to remember, they grew up in the Depression of the 1930s. They would have been kids then. Uh, times would have been tough. There was virtually no money, no jobs. Um, I'm sure their parents had to really scrounge to just make ends meet for most people. Um, so they were a pretty tough lot. And it was probably, you know, don't whine about your lot. Just get on with it. So, and then they went off, and they, their, their parents had fought in World War One. They fought in World War Two. Um, I think they were a pretty tough bunch, and I think that uh, you didn't go home and talk about that kind of stuff because, again, there was a this attitude that people just still thought of war as a glorified thing, and they didn't want to hear the horrible things that people might have gone through over there. Yeah, that would be, I guess, that would be extra weird. Yeah, you're, like, trying to express, like, how... I mean, you were in a war, it was terrible, but, yeah, like, if that's not 
the national narrative or whatever. Yeah, that'd be weird. And and if you've got a, you know, a, a people that are as as a culture just saying no, we don't want to hear about that. That you're putting down, you're putting down the government. You're putting down the cause. You know, and they, and they just didn't want to hear about it. So there was nobody to talk about except among themselves. And maybe they'd go off to the legion and guffaw and drink too much and smoke too much and. Um, it, it's completely different than, like, the way we talk about our military today. My God, I find I'm a bunch of whinies. It's like they whine about everything. <laughs> and they've got all these services at their disposal. Like, if they have even a little bit of mental distress, oh, their psychiatrist to help them out. And there was none of that in those days. You kind of dealt with it on your own. And I'm sure there were some of them that had a real hard time. And uh, some of them killed themselves as a result of it. Um, but there was not a whole lot of uh, sympathy for any of it. Yeah, I'm definitely, definitely like not opposed at all to the idea of like having, you know, psychotherapist type stuff going on, really, because it, it should be a step further than that, even. It's like you just shouldn't be in a situation where you're shooting other people. <laughs> you, just, you just shouldn't. Although, man, that's but one that, thing. That was a time, though, when there was very little. Uh, recognition or acceptance that people, that mental illness is is just as serious uh, an infliction as physical. Um, they knew how to treat physical stuff, but mental illness, there just was nothing for it. So people, you know, just, you know, just get on with it and we don't want to hear about it and don't talk about it. And, and so they didn't. Man, the one thing that is really kind of super crazy but interesting is, uh, is I was uh, listening to a thing about like robots and how like my job right now, my dumb barista job, like will clearly be a robot job and like most jobs will be robot jobs, you know, by the time I'm dead, you know, by the time I'm an old man, there's going to be tons of robots doing robot jobs. But, uh, you know, military is one of those things, like there'll just be a lot of military stuff. But there are like a certain type of person that doesn't like, yeah, if I was in a war, my God, like, I don't know what I would do. It would just be horrible. It would, it would tear my brain apart. But there are like, like textbook literal psychopaths <laughs> that are totally functional and just are in the world doing stuff. And, you know, they don't kill people or whatever, but they just don't feel stuff. <laughs> you know, they don't feel bad. They don't feel guilt. And, uh, and apparently like those people are perfect military people. Like those are, so maybe that's what it'll be. It'll be like the actual humans in the military will be of a far smaller number but they'll be these people <laughs> that they can take it that are just fucking crazy people that or like uh specifically what i heard about them it wasn't about military it was about if there was uh some kind of big collapse that happened or you know everything went into crazy anarchy and uh whatever martial law type stuff is is there's like these weird government programs to like kind of identify and prep psychopath people because they're the ones that can hold society together they're the ones that can lead people and get shit done and not be affected by the fact that the world's falling apart and it's like dude that's that's fucking weird <laughs> it's interesting though yeah there, there's always been people like that who who are military are they're drawn to things like military like police um and, and they That's should be the ones, so right? Like, it's almost weird to put, like, softies like me or whoever in these positions. <laughs> yeah, like, go find the crazy fuckers, man. Get them to do it. 
They like yeah, it. but the reason they want the softies like you is they need the numbers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because you're just fodder. You're just the numbers that'll go in there, and um, you're 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 dispensable. But they need the numbers to put them into the battlefield to do battle, and they really don't care what happens to you at the end of the day. Survive or don't survive or get shot or don't get shot, whatever. Yeah, I always thought it was extra weird too. Like I met a guy uh, when I was in New York who was uh, from Texas. He was actually a pretty cool guy. I liked him and stuff, but he, he joined the military, you know, of his own free will and was a sniper and had some pretty crazy stories about like he killed a bunch of people. And it's like, dude, like you seem pretty cool and you're an all right guy, but like who the hell volunteers to do that? <laughs> so like, what the fuck? That's weird, man. And he didn't seem crazy enough for it, you know? Like, it did definitely affect him. And it's like, well, I don't know what to tell you. Nobody conscripted you. <laughs> it's a pretty weird choice that you made. Yeah, because that's the extra yeah. kick in the dick, too, is I guess that's part of the Vietnam thing, right? Is like they were actually forcing people into the military for that nonsense. Yeah. Well, see, they'd always had conscription. They had, uh, and we did, too. Canadians did, too. In World War One, they conscripted when they couldn't get the numbers. And that's when uh, uh, Quebec really made a big stink about it. They weren't going to go over there and fight for that, that British king. Right. Um, so a whole bunch of them went off into the woods and hid for years or cut off their toes or cut off their hands or something so that they wouldn't have to go. Uh, but the others, as a rule across Canada... They were very few deserted because they were like, hey, you know, yeah, we'll fight for king country. Because, again, had no idea what they were getting into. Then in World War II, they conscripted, I think 1944, they started conscription. Because they had the numbers pretty well in the early part, but then at the end, you know, people were kind of like, yeah, I don't want to go. Or um, Anyway, the numbers were down, or so many of them got killed, right? The numbers were down. Um, in the States, they brought in, they had conscription during the two wars, but I think they had, I think it was in the Vietnam War, they actually started uh, conscription really, really early. And the only way you could get out of it is, uh, you know, well, you either deserted or you, um, if you were in university, I think you could get, you could get out of it. And of course, if you had some power-monging father who had all kinds of money, um, you could get out of it too. Uh, but I think university people didn't have to go. But you, you know, people that were right out of high school, that was it. You had to go two years of service. And conscription stayed in the States. Oh, God. When did it stop? I think it might have stopped when they finally got out of Vietnam in 1975. So around that time. But up to that point, yep, there was conscription. And everybody had to go. Yeah, I think that was like the only saving grace of any of the various Iraq wars and stuff was at least they didn't force people to go. You know, they somehow had enough American jobs. Yeah, but that time, see, conscription had stopped. And I think it was uh, when all that shit about oh, Watergate and all that crap in the States in the 1970s and um, the American president was no longer like God. He was kind of getting the, the bad brush for being more than human it actually corrupt um yeah and i think that and vietnam left such a bad taste in the american uh public 
because they had seen so much that was like just downright cruelty on the American side because of all this publicity that was coming out that that's when they stopped conscription. And they had so many people, too, that were running off to Canada not coming back. Because <laughs> right. they didn't want to fight. <laughs> they had public who were marching and, and uh, you know, re- just refusing to go and burning things in the streets and everything else, burning their draft cards. Just saying, I'm not going. And their jails were getting full of their young people who just wouldn't go. So it it did. It left a very bad taste in their mouth as to, you know, what they felt was right going over there and fighting for right. And yet here was their own their own people saying that's not right, and I'm not doing it. Well, it looks like this uh, this uh, convention center I'm in is starting to shut down a little. So uh, I just want to guess one more little thing before I go is that it just made me think of like you were saying about seeing the American president like he was some kind of god type person and just what we're talking about in general about uh you know just following what your dumb country wants you to do and what you know and believe that made me think of this one story that's really stuck in my head where i read this book about the history of sony that's like you know one of the biggest japanese companies now and you know they make everything they make video games and tvs and whatever they're massive so this was about the history of sony and the there was two guys that started sony right after world war ii and one of them, he was in the, the military in World War II. He was on, like, a boat that was a ways away from the shore. I don't remember exactly how far, but, like, a fair distance. And uh, it was just as, like, the war was, like, coming to an end. And everybody kind of knew. Like, basically, like, they, they really did see the emperor of Japan as, as a literal god figure. Like, in Japan, there's a super, especially back then in the 40s, like, very super homogenous and even more you know, uh, isolated and weird than they are now. <laughs> so, so a lot of people really did see this fucking guy as, as like a God somehow. And isn't it weird too, to think like the emperor of Japan, no one talks about that anymore. <laughs> it's weird to think that they're even, is there still one? I guess there probably is. I don't know. Yeah, but, there is an emperor. Yes. But it, yeah, like nobody cares now, but back then everybody But he's cared. not the sun king like he was. Right. And uh, apparently that was like a big thing was like that, that like it was kind of the word was on the street like this was about to to happen that that the emperor was about to to uh what's the word when you say the war's over <laughs> you know like uh surrender to the allies and uh and that was going to be such a huge like blow to the national like oh my god he is fallible and we're not the amazing super children of the super god that are going to somehow win this whole war by ourselves and everybody knew that when that happened that the commanding officer on this boat and probably on tons of boats all over the place was going to tell everybody uh, there that they had to commit uh, seppuku, like they had to commit ritual suicide and kill themselves. And this guy, I don't remember his name, but one of the founders of Sony was like this, you know, this was in the air, this was going to happen. So he jumped overboard on the boat and managed to swim all the way back to shore and didn't drown and founded Sony and had a whole life every other fucking person on his boat killed themselves when the emperor surrendered (laughs) it's just like fuck you know and that's probably about the percentage of how things are like of however many hundreds of people you get one person that actually thinks for themselves and it's like what the fuck and everyone else will just do whatever everybody else is just a sheep they just follow along do whatever they're told to do and yeah, that story's no so crazy. Because, yeah, like, uh, at least, you know, the American jingoism, you can kind of understand. Like, they just grew up with this weird nationalism, and they believe all these dumb stories about how great they are. 
but they're not just going to kill themselves because you tell them to. But in Japan, they would, and they did. <laughs> and it's like, mm-hmm. holy shit. Crazy. Yep, it's the old Harry Carey. Yep. And now it's like one of the greatest like jewels of Japanese commerce is Sony, and they wanted to tell that guy to kill himself. <laughs> like, what the fuck is wrong? <laughs> this is crazy, man. So crazy. Yeah, we're a crazy, a crazy race. <laughs> and this is really just taking it to a silly little level, but... But, uh, like, it's, I don't know, it really does bug me when people have the attitude of just following the line. Um, so this is a really pedestrian example. But at this dumb coffee shop that I work at, there was a, a guy who came in and he wanted a coffee with six shots of espresso in it. When, like, a triple is the most you ever see. So I was like, that's amazing. This guy's crazy. He wants so much coffee <laughs> in his coffee. So uh, I only charged him for two shots because I was like, I want I want to take part in this experiment. I want to support your crazy caffeine problems. So, uh, so I don't know. I gave him the coffee and whatever. He drank it. It was not, nothing, you know. <laughs> but, but I was telling this other girl another day I was working. I told her that story. I was like, oh, this guy came in the other day. And, oh, my God, I couldn't believe it. You know, six shots of espresso. It was, it was crazy. And, you know, I only charged him for two because, you know. I wanted to see what would happen. And her response was like, you know, I don't think our boss would like that you didn't charge for the extra four. And man, that Buddhist was like ashes in my mouth. That just put me in a bad mood for like the whole day. Because I'm just like, are you fucking serious right now? You give a fuck <laughs> what our stupid ass boss thinks about fucking 50 cents worth of espresso? Like... It just, like, again, maybe I'm reading too much into these things, but I'm just like, how are you going to live your whole life with that attitude? You know? <laughs> like, how? How can you even she's gonna, make it? She's going to live her life like the majority of the populace that just uh, blindly goes along with whatever they're told and uh, thinks what you did was, was just not right. Yeah, I don't know. It just, just can't see, can't see the whole idea of, okay, let's let's get involved in this experiment and see what happens to this guy. Uh, no, can't see that at all. It's those are rules, and and you just broke them. Yeah, it was a weird you too. Bad boy. Yeah, <laughs> and, and I mean, I know I've definitely you know taken it again. It might, might. It's just I, I don't know my tiny little world where I spend most of my time in this coffee shop. So I'm sure I've just put way too much weight on this one stupid thing that she said. But it has been kind of an interesting sort of thing of um, just like meeting all these like 15 new people that work at this coffee shop. And there's me and there's Doug and there's just all these girls. And like, again, it's probably that same sort of ratio is there's like one really cool girl there who also is a lesbian, which is probably part of it. Like she obviously had to, you know, fight against society to just even be able to express that to people or whatever. So she's cool and she never says dumb shit like that, (laughs) you know, (laughs) but everybody else to varying degrees says dumb shit like that. Or, you know, they don't like to hear that. I don't like my job. And it's like, what does the fucking matter with you? (laughs) You know, (laughs) I just, I don't know. It's weird, but they're all nice people and stuff. But yeah, that one in particular, I was like, that, that is such a ridiculous response to this funny story. I'm trying to tell you about a guy who wanted six shots of espresso. I don't know. So did he have no reaction at all? Yeah, no, he told me it didn't do much for him. And I was like, well, okay, I did my best, pal. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, next time if you want six, you'll have to pay for it, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> Our boss, too, like, he's okay. He's an okay guy. He's this Israeli guy. He's probably in his late 40s. And uh, he's kind of funny. He's kind of a jerk. He's, like, right on the middle. I don't know. I don't mind him, but I don't love him. But uh, I just found out the other day, like, he has, like, there's cameras set up all over the place. But I thought it was just 
you know, on the computer in the back, like they're on a little screen and you can see and it's, I don't know, in case we get robbed or something. But I found out he has an app on his phone where anytime in the day you can just pull up his phone and look at all the security cameras because he would start calling up at weird times. Like we happen to have a real busy night on Friday and uh, so we about, but everybody gets like a half hour break, you know, halfway through their eight hours of drudgery. So we sent this girl off to do her half hour break, even though it was busy because we just just like now or never, like we have to give her a break. And he calls up and he's like, why is she sitting back there doing nothing? And it's like, how do you even know that? And that's when I found out about his weird camera security system. I mean, like, fuck this guy and his four shots of espresso. Are you kidding me? (laughs) Like, like he's okay. I'm not going to screw him over or anything, but like the idea that, oh, we're his little soldiers. I'm like, never. Are you insane? We're minimum wage wage slaves. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, I just think that's just so weird. Like, how do you not grow up with that attitude? But I guess even like, uh, I wish I had a copy of this, but I remember in eighth grade, uh, I got picked to do like one of those provincial tests. They had math tests and English tests to check how good the province was doing. So I got selected to do the English report. And the question was, uh, write a, you know, three page essay about your hero. And I just wrote about how fucking crazy that was. What are you talking about, my hero? Like, what does that even mean? What is this, 1950? Like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> and I still got, like, an 84 on it. Like, the, the mark back was like, this was not the requested assignment. But other than that, there was nothing wrong with it. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess you just got it or you don't. I don't know. Because, I mean, nobody else in my class would have written that. Just saying. No, everybody else would have picked a hero and they would have written and they would have just done exactly what they were told to do. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, it's not like I was trying, not like I walked in there. I walked in there with the intention of just doing whatever. It's like, okay, I'll just do whatever. But, like, that was just, like, such a roadblock. I'm like, I don't even know what that means. Like, what am I supposed to, like, just supposed to pick some baseball player or something? Like, it just seemed like, like I'm just going to school, being miserable, getting picked on, hating everything every day. And this is how out of fucking touch you are with what you're doing to me? That you think I'm going to write about my hero right now? Like, ugh, unbelievable. I was incensed by that. So anyway, yeah, of the of the 15 people, there's one super cool one, and she doesn't like dudes, so that's a shame. I mean, she likes dudes, we're friends, but you know. <laughs> so, but I thought that was, I don't know, when I found out she was a lesbian, I'm like, yeah, you know, that kind of, not, not to just be reductive, but I'm like, yeah, like, you can't, you can't just toe the line and be in a social group that everybody has a problem with, <laughs> so... You know, and maybe it's a good thing in some ways. It like forces you to rattle the cage. I don't know what yeah. my excuse is. I was just an angry nerd kid. <laughs> but well, no, you're just not a conformist. Right. And there's nothing wrong with that. Also, it's weird too, man. Uh, just like, uh, like it's interesting to just like yeah, and meet these people and hang out with them and whatever, and just kind of be friends, and that's cool. Well, it's neat too, just because as I was leaving Toronto, like that just all that crap with that girl Jennifer and then the other Jennifer Joel's wife I got in a fight with her like just every Jennifer in the world hated me <laughs> and I was starting to think like Jesus do I just not get along with women so it's it's neat in a way to now be around these like just 15 people these 15 girls that I get along with all of them it's fine I'm like oh good like that's good but really it can only just be like friend at the coffee shop because like they're born in like 1995 <laughs> you know it's like wow are you kidding I started high school that year. How is that possible? That's crazy. I'm clearly a little too old for the coffee shop gig, but 
Although my friend uh, Josh from Atlanta, he just turned 40 and he also works at a coffee shop. So that made me feel a little better. <laughs> I was like, oh, well, that's fine then, I guess. But that's probably part of it too. I don't know. I mean, yeah, if you're still in your early 20s, I guess it's an early job. Actually, you know, I know we've been talking for ages and this is really off the topic of um, wars and such, but I did want to ask you just about jobs. I was just thinking about, um, didn't you tell me you worked at a hotel for a while? Yeah, I worked at the Algonquin Hotel one summer. So maybe let's just finish off with that. Just a few minutes of, I'm just interested in jobs. I like to hear about what jobs are like. So what was that job like? It was a great job, actually, one of the best ones I had. I uh, um, I was supposed to hi- be hired to do um, the making beds and that chambermaid. But um, I had just got my B.A. that summer uh, in May or whatever, and so they hired me because I had a degree. Wow, really? That's why you got So the... in the housekeeping <laughs> department, I just got to answer the telephone. Oh, cool. So I sat there, answered the phone, and found out... Uh, um, you know, people would need towels or whatever. I'd tell the chambermaids to go and do that, and I kept the records of um, who was doing the chambermaid work that day or whatever. And then, But it got very boring. And actually, towards the end of the summer, um, they, they had hired a bunch of people from university students from uh, Quebec and Ontario to come down and work in the hotel, and they had to all leave about... I'm going to say end of August, and um, the, the hotel was winding down, and I actually volunteered to go and do chambermaid work for the last, I stayed on for three weeks, I was late starting university that year, I was going back for my BED. I missed about two weeks, the first two weeks, and I mean, yeah, what the hell, <laughs> I don't care, so if I miss a big deal, I'll be late. Um, uh, so I went and did chambermaid work, and actually I liked it better. Yeah, I can see that. Like, uh, that's one thing I like about this job now is I like at least moving around and doing stuff. It's not just sitting at a desk type of thing. Like, yeah, something to be anyway, said. It's a wonder I got the job because they must have thought it was pretty friggin' stupid. Um, in the Algonquin Hotel are these huge, big windows, but they look like big patio. <laughs> they look like big patio. Uh, they look like patio doors. They're great big windows like that. So I remember my, my father drove me up from Campobello for the interview and pulled up out in front of, not the front door of the hotel, but sort of up beside it. And I could see where this, uh, this they had told me to go to this room that was right, at, right off the lobby um, for this interview. Well, so he stops and I see these these big windows that look like doors to me. Oh, and one of them was open. <laughs> so... I didn't quite know how to get into the hotel, and I figured, oh, well, there's the door, so I went in through the window into this room where they were having the interviews, and I kind of stepped up over this edge that was probably about up to my mid-calf. I stepped up over that, and then I had to step down into this room, and here were these people in here who were going to give the interview, and as I stepped in, they, oh, are you here for the interview? And I said, yes, I am, trying to sound very professional, whatever. And then this man who was doing the interview says to me, oh, well, you, you realize you should have come in through the door? And I said, well, didn't I? He said, no, you came in through the window. <laughs> I'm like looking around me, and, and then I see, I realize that all of these things are windows, and I just come in through the window to go for the interview. 
It's like you came, like, especially because Campobello is, like, you know, small and kind of rural. Yeah, like, a little hey, hick just... from down in the Bay of Fundy comes in through the window, doesn't even know enough to come in through the door. That's awesome. I thought you were going to say... I thought, oh, God. As soon as I was saying, that, like, yeah, geez, they probably wouldn't even hire me to clean a toilet here now. I thought you were going to say, like, you were trying to open the window and, it, and there was no way to open it. But, I mean, actually coming in, I think that's actually kind of suave. That's pretty cool, I think. Yeah, just, just stepped coming right through in. the window. And it's only once I got in... Uh, that I look, I could see where the door was, and it was so obviously a great big door that I should have come in through. And I'm about to wrap, look behind me, and oh, yeah, here, geez, these are windows. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I can just okay. see that as like a scene from like a movie or something, like you know, Steve Martin, the jerk, or something. <laughs> he comes in through the window, and then the camera like pans over to the giant door. It's like, oh yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what it was like, and I thought, oh man, oh god, I must look really friggin' like a real hick. <laughs> That's awesome. Although, uh, I think that's interesting, And then too. they offered me the job of, when they found out I had a degree, they offered, where, where I was supposed to be doing the chambermaid work, they offered me this other job, and it was it was great. That's interesting, too, though, that, uh, like, that's the big thing nowadays is, like, oh, you get a degree and you just still get uh, just a normal job, and, oh, that sucks. But, I mean, I guess that was, in the mid-'70s, that was also happening, right? <laughs> like, yeah. I'm sure answering yep. phones did not require a degree. <laughs> And the other thing that was great about it, I'd always bitten my fingernails. And that summer, because I was answering the phone and not cleaning toilets, um, I went out and bought myself some ha- Sally Hansen hard-as-nail stuff, and I stopped biting my nails that summer and let them started to grow out. Mm-hmm. So there it was a, another benefit to it. Man, that's a weird thing, too. Like, I used to bite my nails all the time as a kid. I remember we would buy that stuff that you put on your fingernails that tastes bitter. And that's supposed oh, to make yeah, you... it tasted like the lining of a grapefruit. Yeah, it didn't help, though. It didn't matter at all. Like, it didn't stop me. But I'm just, I wonder why I don't bite my nails anymore. Like, it's weird stuff like that. There's no reason. I just stopped doing it eventually. But yeah, that stuff definitely didn't bother me. I've got, I don't know what it is. I mean, there's probably a term for this. I should look it up. But I don't know. I just am not bothered by, like, mm-hmm. like putting stuff in my mouth. Like, I don't know. If I'm bleeding, I'll just suck the blood off. Or, like, a scab, I'll chew it up and swallow it. I don't care. Or, uh... Earwax, like that stuff tasted just like earwax. I don't mind earwax. I don't care. I just don't give a shit. <laughs> so, I don't know. It's pretty gross to people or snot. Like, I don't, I don't care. If it's from my body, I don't give a shit about it. So, I mean, I wouldn't eat poop or something. But, or even pee. Like, if I get a drop of pee on my finger, it's like it's easier just to lick it off. Like, it, I just don't care. <laughs> so, I don't know. I'm sure a lot of people would find that super gross. But the point is that that, that stuff that's supposed to make your fingernails better did not deter me. Yeah, that didn't that didn't do me either. But that summer, um, what I did get, um, I got myself some nail clippers, and I had a, a, a little nail file there. And when I get those little jagged things, which is really why I would end up biting my nails, I'd get a jagged thing on my fingernail, or my fingernail break a little bit, and then I just like nibble it off. I wasn't really a nail biter. It was like you know that's chewing them like that to kind of get rid of little ridges right. but once I got that nail file um, and I guess I was at and answering the phone I was just like those people you see in movies you know with the legs crossed the phone in one ear and filing away <laughs> man I remember one more random this episode has been crazy long I really should <laughs> I really should go but it's just a weird little memory that just came back to me um, can't remember her name but there was you know Gail Cavanaugh and Joey was the son and what was the daughter's name do you remember Anyway. Joey and Amanda? Amanda, Gail. that was it. Yeah, so yeah, yeah so this family that lived around the corner from us, I remember 
uh, there was this period where Amanda was cutting her nails like crazy short, like super obsessively cutting her nails so that like like they were too short like you know the the they went down past the tips of her fingers so the tips of her fingers were kind of bulbous and like poking out more than her nails it was really gross and weird even as a kid i was like dude that's some ocd shit going on there i don't know what that's all about (laughs) but she just played it off like oh i'm just keeping them trim yeah, you see, you see a whole lot of people that have that. Their their nails, their nail is so short. Yeah, that the top of the finger almost like is growing over it. Ugh. Yeah, that's weird though. It's really all I remember is that, and I remember they had a Teddy Ruxpin. Those are my <laughs> my major memories. I'm sure, you remember them way better as you were an adult, but. Oh, and I remember trying to learn how to ride a bike in their parking lot once and just constantly falling down and falling down and scraping my knees all up. And that's a weird thing about kids, right? Like, I was just bleeding from the knees, and I was like, well, whatever. Maybe I'll get it. Do Maybe I'll do better tomorrow. <laughs> like, it just didn't bother me that I was falling off a bike all day. Anyway, yeah, so I really should get going. This place is turning into a ghost town. It's still raining outside. Yeah. That's nice. And uh, I think we've been at this for probably an hour. Yeah, pretty lo- pretty long. Actually, I'll check. Let's see. Da-ding. Hour and... Hour and a half. Holy crap. Yeah. Holy. <laughs> so there we go. Our longest episode ever. Yeah, well, we got a lot of, lot of good stuff in there. Yeah, cool. Uh, and I guess it's your birthday next week, right? Or coming up very soon. Maybe yep, not even. Yeah, a couple of days. Just a few days. Nice. So I'll try to give you a ring, but if I don't, happy birthday. Okay, well, thank you very much. Cool. All right, so uh, I guess I'll let you know in a couple weeks how my schedule is lining up and... So we'll see what okay. we can sort out. All right. Great hearing from you. This should be a good podcast because it had lots of chat in it. Yeah, totally. And uh, I mean, yeah, I, I like to think I'd be interested in this show, but who knows? Maybe, I don't know. They definitely like it. There was a pretty, pretty clear listenership uh, initially. People were like, oh, this is a cool thing. And who knows? Who knows who's still listening? I, I kind of deliberately like don't track numbers of downloads and things because I'd just rather not know. It's like, whatever, listen or don't, whatever. But yeah, yeah I think it was pretty I agree. interesting. Cool. All right. So, yeah, I will talk to you in a couple weeks. Okay. Okay. Have a good night. You too. Okay, bye. Bye Bye-bye.